Welcome to the Sandbox. Welcome to the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Chris. You know, I've always loved thinking and talking about the way we understand God and how that affects what it means for us really to be human. And sometimes we can feel unfortunately limited in our church communities, like certain things might not be appropriate to ask or think. But the reality, I think, is that our best, when we gather, we get the chance to ask questions, share stories, and learn from each other, because none of us really have it figured out anyway. I hope that this podcast has helped you ask some new questions too, and that maybe it has opened up your curiosity around some of the topics we've explored so far. Now, a few months back, we caught up with Peter Rollins. He's a provocative writer, philosopher, storyteller, and public speaker who has gained an international reputation for overturning traditional notions of religion and challenging us to consider different ways of thinking about our world and faith. We were talking with him at a conference, and when he found out about our podcast, he said he'd love to be a part of it. And we're excited to share part of that conversation with you now. So uh, you use a lot of uh, stories, a lot of parables in, in the, the things that you're presenting, the, the ideas that you're sharing. Um, first of all, why? And, and second of all, what is it about maybe just human nature, the way that we operate that allows those stories to kind of permeate us so differently? Yeah, I mean, there's so many reasons why I use stories and parables and what I do. I mean, what, a parable is like, um, it's a discourse. If you kind of th- if you think of discourse, like a discourse that sends you off course, whenever you hear a parable, um, at its best, it doesn't confirm something you believe. It's not like an aphorism. It's not like a little wisdom saying that tells you how you should live your life. It's not like too many cooks spoil the broth or something like that. It, it disrupts you. It surprises you. Uh, it gets you to look at the world in a slightly different way. And, and they often, a good parable, will bring up uh, hidden aspects of ourselves, loneliness, violence, fears, hopes. Uh, and so my, my work is largely about trying to bring those things to the surface. Uh, that we face those things rather than run from them and good stories good parables good comedy a uh, good good singer songwriter uh, d- does that they bring those it's almost like a therapist they they help to bring those things to the surface and lost actually engage with it rather than shifting it aside or pretending it's not there or yeah all sorts of things and this is why I mean I, I've been doing some work on the idea of Jesus as a, as a wisdom figure and as an ethical figure uh, it's very common especially in progressive circles to hear people say Jesus was wise and Jesus was ethical um, and I'm kind of trying to say well actually in, in a sense Jesus is completely the opposite of, of a wise man um, and in a strange sense um, can't be fitted into some sort of ethical mm. system and the reason for that is you know, in many ways, wisdom, uh, first of all, it can say anything you want. You know, you can have one wisdom saying that, that says, you know, say too many cooks spoil the broth, and then another one that says the more the merrier, right? So you can get wisdom sayings that say anything. Um, they also are conservative in many ways. They, they tell you where you are in your life right now, that's where you should be. Uh, it, they're often kind of very apolitical. It's about accepting life as it is, uh, accepting the status quo. Um, what I think about the teachings of Jesus and the parables are they're kind of the opposite. They're foolishness to us. They, the things that we take as wise, the, the, the things that we think are, are sensible, it messes them up. It tells us, you know, that, 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 that the one sheep is, is worth more than the 99. Uh, it, it, it plays with our sense of what's right and wrong. Mm-hmm. And in the same way, ethics, you know, an ethical system tells you what's right and what's wrong, what you should do when you've done enough. Uh, but the problem with that is I could be very ethical for the worst reasons 
I could be nice at either because I'm afraid of, of, of showing another side of myself where I can you know, say sweet things but with real anger and bitterness in my heart. And in many ways, I see Jesus as not teaching us some sort of ethical system, but helping us become more human uh, so that we'll bear fruit in kind of hopefully ethical ways. But it's not about simply saying, you know, turn the other cheek or, or walk the second mile. It's about uh, coming into a form of life in which those things become natural to us. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing about ethics, by the way, is you, you go, what's right and what's wrong? And then you do it. And, and that's great. But uh, there's something about love that's infinite. If, 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 if you go, oh, I have to buy flowers on Valentine's Day, love goes, I'm gonna do, you know, I'm gonna buy them the day before, whatever, love's always going, what must I do and does more? And also love also acts when it doesn't know what to do. It just acts because it has to. So um, I'm interested in Jesus' discourse as a form of disrupting mm. wisdom, as disrupting our ethical systems, but calling us um, to be more human and to embrace the world and each other in a, in a deeper, uh, more graceful way. Yeah, so like in some ways we get distracted by the, uh, the, the we should do this, we shouldn't do this, that we like actually miss the thing that causes us to do that good. You know, we kind of get caught. And so those parables help us shift that, that framework so that we yeah. can actually get to that and understand what's how we're supposed to be, who we're supposed to be. Yeah, like, like things. you know, I'll give you an example of like a little parable that says that there's this king Who's, a, who's supposedly a compassionate man and he comes back to his castle and he sees a beggar at the gates and he, he goes into his servants and he says, you know, get rid of the beggar, execute him, throw him out. You know that I'm such a kind and compassionate man that I cannot bear to look upon the suffering, right? So you listen to that parable and of course the king seems like a total fool. But then the trick of the parable is you start to go, oh, Maybe I'm like that. You know, I'm such a kind and compassionate person. I love kids, so don't tell me uh, where the products are made that I use. Don't tell me what happens to the animals that I eat, because I love animals. I'm an animal lover, so don't show me what's going on there, you know? I love the environment, so I don't want to see some documentary that's telling me, you know, what's really going on. And, and so the parable, it kind of like, it lowers the defense mechanisms because you're, you're, it's not saying you're like this. Because mm -hmm. as soon as I say, you know, you've got a problem, even if you think I'm right, your defenses come up and you can't help but go, no, I don't, everything's fine. But a parable gets around the defense mechanisms. You hear this story of the king, and then just at the right moment, you start to, if you have ears to hear, you start to go, oh, I'm convicted by this. This is telling me something deep about myself. Yeah. And you have to be open to that. You yeah. have to be open to that. But if ever there was a shot at being open for it, it's through the parable. It's through this. It's the power of story. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's that, it's that non-defensiveness. Like if I, if I see you mistreating your friend, you know, your mm -hmm. partner, mm -hmm. and I'm like, you know, you're, you're really being nasty, dear. What, what mm -hmm. are you doing? Mm -hmm. And you, you'd be like, I know, but she's an absolute nightmare. You know, you can't believe what she's like. You know? mm -hmm. But then if I buy you a drink and we, mm -hmm. we chat about it, mm -hmm. uh, you're more likely to go, you know, oh, you know, I've been a bit stressed lately and I've really taken it out of my partner. Yeah. So if I, if I come at you defensively, I'm not gonna get anywhere. But mm -hmm. if I'm able to lower your defenses, you, you, you already know probably the, the things that are going wrong in your life. And that's yeah. what a parable does. Yeah. So what, um, I mean, we obviously, within Christian circles, we talk about Jesus' parables all the time. Mm -hmm. But what are some other places 
or other authors or, or where else are you finding parallels that are really helpful for you? Yeah, I mean, it's surprising how few parables are around. Parables are like the, the bread and butter of the Gospels. Um, but it's, it's quite hard to find people who are writing good parables, telling good parables. Mm-hmm. Um, but Soren Kierkegaard was, was, was brilliant at it. Uh, there's a, a, a guy, uh, Anthony DeMello, who compiled some of the most beautiful stories and parables from around the world in a book called The Song of the Bird. So, you know, people think I've got all these great stories, but, you know, the secret is I've, I've read a couple of really good books. That <laughs> so, you know, read, read The Song of the Bird and you, you'll have like, oh, you know, it's, it's just a stunning book full of wonderful stories, many of which I've used. So what are you working on right now? We were talking earlier about um, some new pro- a new project, new way of thinking that you're that you're dealing with. Yeah. So at the moment, the funny thing is, like I'll say this: oh, the next book is you know such and such. But yeah. by the time it comes out, it'll probably be nothing like this. And <laughs> right. anyone who's listening right. will go, "This book is, is is about like how to embroider sofas or something." Is <laughs> <laughs> nothing to do with it. It's kind of the way our podcast is going. Yeah. Here's, here's what we're going to do, and then it turns out totally different. Go somewhere yeah. completely different. Yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful thing about writing. It's like this adventure where you think you're in the driver's seat, but it actually takes you places you don't expect yeah but at the moment i mean, in the last year i've been really drawn to three analogies uh horror uh ghosts and detectives and they're all very separate and so i was actually looking at writing three little books one a horror story a detective story and a ghost story uh and then i had this brainwave that is is never going to go anywhere so i'm going to say it and, <laughs> I, and you'll never see this anywhere but it was like what, what, how could I bring these three things together? And I, and I remembered Scooby-Doo. And I was like, <laughs> Scooby-Doo, right? Because Scooby-Doo, it's kind of like a horror thing, right? It's always in like some abandoned building or some graveyard right. or something, right? Scary. It's a ghost story. There's always monsters and spooks and specters. But at its core, it's really a detective story because mm-hmm. the ghosts aren't really ghosts. They're unmasked and it's some criminal who's trying to get away with something. And you're the meddling kid? I'm the meddling kid. <laughs> they would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for the meddling yeah. kid. Yeah. 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 So I was kind of going like, oh, right, this is interesting because in a sense, these three analogies that uh, I'm playing with, um, do, do interconnect. And, and the, the way they do is this, is basically, so the horror story is simple. It, it's, it might be called fulfilling your, fulfilling your dreams. So the, the subtitle is a horror story. And, and the idea of that is actually, the more we try to fulfill our dreams, the more we try to get heaven, the more there's hell to pay. Everybody wants to get rid of hell and keep heaven. You see that, of course, in religious circles. There's mm-hmm. lots of books that are saying, you know, you know hell doesn't fit with the, 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 the whole trajectory of the Bible. But in secular terms, it's the same. There's people who are going like, you can have wholeness, completeness, you take ayahuasca, you, you, you engage in these new technologies, you engage in these spiritual practices, and you will find nirvana, right? Mm-hmm. It's heaven without hell. And it's financially as well. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, you can have the best house and the best car and everything, and be living in hell. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this one of the definitions of religion, really, that Karl Marx used was he was like, religion is a painkiller. It's mm. uh, he says um, uh, his exact words. You all know what is it? You know, religion is the opiate of the people. It is yeah. the. But he goes on. It is the heart of a heartless nation. The soul of a soulless condition. And he talks about how actually people who are in deep pain want a painkiller. And there's nothing wrong with that. He's actually not against it at all. Except he says, the problem is it doesn't deal with the problem. It helps you feel a bit better, but it doesn't change your material circumstances. So then he goes on and says, 
you know, you, you don't put flowers, imaginary flowers, in the chains of your oppression. You've got to take the imaginary flowers off, look at the chains, not so that you despair, but so that you can break them and pick real living flowers. Right? Mm. And think about it in terms of like AA, like an intervention. Someone is drinking because they don't like their life. It's not working, it's horrible. There's some trauma. And the drinking is helping, it's the solution to the problem. But ultimately, uh, it's not fixing the material situation. So maybe in an intervention, people come in, they sit down, and they basically take the imaginary flowers away. You've got a problem, you've got to deal with it. Not so the person despairs, although that can happen, but hopefully so that they see the chains and begin to work to break them and can pick living flowers. So today, religion is not in the churches. Religion is in consumerism. It's in, mm-hmm. it's in the, uh, those who are selling new drugs, uh, new practices that will bring peace in Nirvana. That's, religion is right. I live in LA, we're doing this yeah. in LA. It's, it's the religious capital of the world. Mm. You know, that's, everyone's mm. a priest and a guru selling you peace and prosperity. Yes. And, and I'm saying that the subversive message of, the, of Christianity uh, is actually that we need to learn to embrace the earth and, and, and actually uh, not try to pursue heaven but rather find the absolute in the grit and the grime of the world. In the brokenness and through the brokenness. Yeah. So that's the horror story. So I was wondering why I was telling you all this. Yeah. That's the, horror, the, horror story. The, the horror story is the, the more you run, the more you try to get heaven, the more there's yeah, hell to yeah, pay. Yeah. So then the second is the ghost story. You go like, well, how, how, does, how, do, how does this manifest itself? Well, the ghosts of the things we can't repress the people we've hurt, the people who have hurt us, the people we've loved and the people we've lost, all, all those aspects of ourselves that whenever you've got the news going, you're going to parties, you're, you're getting the new house, you're kind of, everything's great. Mm-hmm. But those little ghosts are at work saying, no, not everything's good. And they come out in the smallest of ways. Mm-hmm. They come out in our lives in, a, in outbursts of anger and tears over like an advert on TV or whatever it is. And so that brings us to the third one, which is the detective story that ultimately those ghosts uh, are telling us something about our own suffering and brokenness and those dark parts of ourselves we haven't healed mm-hmm. um, and it, we have to do detective work so we have to look at ourselves and like we're the scene of a crime and it all looks like everything's fine oh there was a murder here but this is what happened x y and z that's what the police see but then the detective comes in and goes there's one tiny anomaly and the tiny anomaly actually tells the truth what you see doesn't tell the truth. What you see is the lie that the criminals created. But the little anomaly tells you the truth, right? In the same way, we have to be detectives with ourselves. Mm-hmm. Your daily life doesn't tell you the truth about who you are. It's those little symptoms that, that stick out, that happen, and they're the truth. But um, you can't see that unless somebody points that out to you. Yeah, yes. You either can't or you won't or... Absolutely, so, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, so we kind of need each other and we need to be very watchful for it's what's called the symptom those little parts of ourselves that we want to deny which takes us back naturally to scooby-doo which takes it back to, oh yeah to scooby-doo <laughs> yeah, yeah. so when because here's the ending of scooby-doo uh-huh. the ending of scooby-doo is uh you unmask what's really going on and the horror finishes you know it's like the time goes back to normal the people come you know it's been mm-hmm. say it's like some ghoul has been found and the guy's trying to scare everybody out of the town yeah mm-hmm. but once it's been unmasked and you know what's going on then then the people return so the idea is that our experience of life can often be very painful and very difficult we don't directly experience that but it's seen in the ghosts 
and those ghosts have symptoms. But if we are able to look at those symptoms and we're able to bring those ghosts to the surface, they become holy ghosts. Mm. If we don't, they're poltergeists and they break things. But if they, if they, we bring them to the surface, they become holy ghosts. And we can actually learn to be more beautiful and caring people. I just got done spending a summer looking at Divine Magician, your book. Mm -hmm. And I could only take it a few pages at a time because I just, because it was messing with my head and it was amazing. Could you just share some insights from, from that book? I think it's a, it's a different take on what it is to, to be Jesus people. So. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'll, I could take a couple of angles, but I'll, yeah. we, we just before this interview, actually, we were talking about Kester Bruin yeah, and yeah, his yeah. interpretation of the prodigal, the prodigal son. son. And that yeah. might be a way to get to the heart of what I'm doing in the book. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, most of the people who are listening to this will know the story of the prodigal son. Uh, you know, yeah. a, a young guy, family of three, leaves the house with his share of the inheritance. There's plagues, famines, it's all, it doesn't work out. And he's, he has to supplement his diet by feeding on scraps mm -hmm. from animals that he's feeding until he goes back to the wealthy home, welcomed back by the father. And that's it. And, and, and most of the interpretations, in fact, I think all of the interpretations of that story are how this is kind of a gets to the heart of the gospel. It gets to the heart of what Christianity is. We can go out and mess up and, 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 and yet there is this loving grace. You know, the absolute God is there to welcome us back. Receives us home. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but Kester, you know, has this other interpretation, which is brilliant. I love the fact that these stories can still be shocking and disturbing to us. You know, I, yeah. I've, I've heard that story my whole life. It's been one of my favorite stories. I thought I'd heard every take on it, and then I read that, and uh, like I was done for the week. I, I yeah, yeah, my brain right now. But. It's explosive because Kester simply starts and goes, "Well, what, what if the story isn't being told as you know? This is the heart of the gospel. What, what if actually <laughs> it's the opposite? What if what if this story is an absolute failure? You know, there's a family of three that have never known suffering. They've never known hunger." They have everything. And by the way, remember that at that time, it's even crazier than now, the wealth disparity was huge. If you had that amount of wealth, you had slaves, you had people right outside your border who were dying, right? And so the son is just bored, he's young. He wants to go out and experience the world. Kester says basically he wants to go to university, you know, spend his parents' money and get drunk, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's the two things you do. Um, I, I don't know what you speak of. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> There's other things universities for. Wait, what? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so the, you know, the kid's like any normal kid who yeah, is a bit annoying yeah. to the parents and going like, dad, I want my money. I want to go out and have a laugh. Yeah. And of course the dad's probably hurt, but gives the kid the money, kid goes out does his thing. The kid experiences a world of suffering, a world of pain, probably the first time he's ever experienced that, mm -hmm. you know, in a, in a real level, real people who are in real dire straits. And then it gets even worse. He then experiences it directly. So what does he do? Well, we read actually that he says, I'll go back to my father's house, but I won't go back as a son. I'll go back as a laborer, you know, mm -hmm. do an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. So he starts going back. Now, notice something. The father's never come out to look for the son. The other parables is like a shepherd who, who leaves 99 sheep to find one or mm -hmm. a woman who leaves her, her whole purse to find a coin. This is different. The father is mm -hmm. in the home, but he hears from a servant that the son's coming back. And like any father, a conservative father whose son is coming back from university, basically, like what have those liberals been telling him? You know, what crazy <laughs> ideas is he going to come back with, right? Yeah. So he meets the son at the, at the border 
and doesn't let the son speak. Basically, the son's about to, you know, say his whole spiel. Goes like, don't say anything, don't say anything. Put this cloak on. Feels good, doesn't it? You must be freezing, you know? Here, put this ring on. This is a ring that signals your power and your authority. And even better, you've been eating scraps. Hey, we've got a fattened calf waiting right back at the house. And so what happens is he comes back in and nothing changes. Nothing's changed. The story ends where it began. And in cinematic terms, that's a failure. There's no development. Um, now, the reason why Kester reads it like this is not just for the sake of playfulness. Mm-hmm. It's because he goes, well, you know what? There's another story of a family of three in the Bible <laughs> and a very wealthy family who don't know poverty and pain and suffering. And the son leaves and experiences deep suffering and deep and sees it firsthand and also then experiences it. And so there's a parallel here. And then it comes to the central moment where this other son also has the opportunity to go back to the father. We're waiting, you know, he just has to call out. Mm-hmm. And the father won't come, but the father will send messengers and the messengers will take the son back, right? So at this point, what's gonna happen? And this is where it changes. The son says, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? What's going on? Why am I alone? And at that very moment, the temple curtain rips in half, which symbolically is the borderline between the Holy of Holies, the pure place, and the impure, you know, the court of Gentiles and the places where, where we live and we do mm-hmm. business, where we sacrifice, where we, where we exchange goods. And symbolically, you can say that that's the Father coming out into the earth. So the whole book is about saying we're always trying to get to, you know, with heaven, the sacred, mm-hmm. what I was saying at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But the radical message of Christ might be, no, the sacred needs to be embedded here. The sacred is, is here. The yeah. temple curtain is torn. In the dirt of the yeah. world, yeah. you know? I mean, this is why there's a, there's a story from Belfast I love. Um, and I remember it was told when I was young, would go around during the Troubles. Uh, it was about the IRA. Because mm. uh, one of the things the IRA did is they would plant bombs uh, in you know uh, shopping centres, and then they would mm. phone up the police and say, "You got five minutes or ten minutes to get everybody out." Right? And this mm. happened all the mm. time. I was caught in a supermarket or in a in a swimming pool when this happened. Out of the swimming pool, they give you their silver capes, and you're standing mm-hmm. freezing in mm. your swimming trunks. You know. <laughs> uh, uh, so the story went that this this guy dies, goes to heaven, and he's waiting at the pearly gates, and St Peter comes out with a big book opens it up and says, listen mate, you're in the IRA, you're not getting in. And uh, this guy, Seamus, he's like, he says, you misunderstand. He says, I'm not trying to get in. You got five minutes to get out. <laughs> now, that, that's, I think, the subversive core mm-hmm. of Christianity. It's going like, we're not trying to get to the, the safe place where the absolute is. We're saying, we're getting the absolute out into the, into the earth, mm-hmm. into the world. And it's a, it's a reading of Christianity from that perspective. Right. So we did one of our first episodes was um, on this this idea of sacred and secular, and kind of uh, uh, I would say in some ways our argument was was that we've we've falsely divided the two. Like we just we've kind of got this this wall that we've stuck between. Maybe in connection with that, can you just expand on on that idea and add to that conversation a little bit? Well, you're saying between the sacred and the secular, yeah. they're kind of like this binary yeah. opposite. Yeah, yeah, you know, absolutely. And and there's loads of different ways that people have tried to. bring those together Um, there's like there's a a radical orthodox people who are very smart theologians Um, they point out that the secular comes after the sacred the you know if you I think I think John Milbank's first book starts with you know in the beginning there was no secular 
um, and he, he makes this argument that secular kind of came out of a, it's a type of heresy, that's kind of his argument. Um, uh, what, what, what can I add to that? Um, I mean, so to, to me, when I'm when I'm hearing the, those stories, I'm I'm hearing that if we're really looking to essentially bring the divine into like an, at least our awareness of, of what's in existence, like I mean, to me, that's a, that sounds like well, why aren't we seeing this? Why aren't we recognizing or realizing that that's in front of us? It kind of, I mean, like my argument is to, can sound quite counterintuitive for a second because. Um, yeah, there, there's another story very quickly I'll tell you if I like it um, it's about uh, this farmer who uh, goes into a competition in Ireland to build a sheep pen and uh, there's three people enter it and the idea is you have to build a sheep pen and see how many sheep will fit in it biggest sheep pen wins so the first person's this architect and she builds this interesting structure with the materials gets a hundred sheep in the pen uh, then this engineer he, he does something even more clever he gets 150 sheep in the pen uh, and then finally it's Seamus, he's just getting an Irish tan, going red in the sun, doesn't done anything, until he sees the judges <laughs> coming over, right? And then quickly builds this tiny, tiny square, and he's inside just painting it when the judges come. And they're like, that's tiny, you couldn't fit one sheep in it. You know, what are you doing? And he says, oh, you, you don't understand. He says, I'm not in it, I'm, I'm outside, you're inside the sheep pen. Right? Whereas that's the sheep pen is the whole world. <laughs> the, the one bit that's not a sheep yep. pen is the bit he's standing in. Right? This is, I think, what Christianity says in response to those people who laugh at the church and say, you think the sacred is in, is in there. You think the religious is in there. You know, mm -hmm. you're, you're stupid. The response, the radical response is, no, 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 you're idiots. You're standing in the sacred, but more so we're, we're outside of it. And, and what I mean by that is that in Christianity, there is this moment where every if I define the sacred as a sacred object as that thing you think will make you whole and complete, that thing that you put up on the pedestal, a relationship, a, a religion, a man, a woman, a, a car, whatever it is, the sacred is that, right? We're all immersed in, in searching for the sacred object, the object that will make us whole and complete. I argue that in Christianity there's this crazy moment when we experience that that sacred object doesn't exist. By the way, the Bible has a story for it, which is Adam and Eve, a piece of fruit at the beginning that, mm. oh, if you could get that, you'll be like gods, right? Mm. So that's, and that, you know, now it's, if I could only get that new car, oh my goodness, I'd be a god, right? But mm. so the, the Bible starts off with this story, this object. And then the temple in Jerusalem recreates Adam and Eve. Because in the garden, you've got the sacred object. There's a prohibition, which means you can't get it. And then there's the garden. You can walk around, do whatever you want. In the temple, there's the Holy of Holies. And there's the sacred object in there. There's the curtain. And then there's the outside, the court of Gentiles, right? So it recreates it. Then in Christianity, there's this profound moment where the temple curtain rips. And you see inside the Holy of Holies. And there's nothing there. There's nothing there. This is the nihilistic moment where I think the church is deeply profane. It says, you're looking for the sacred object. No, the sacred object doesn't exist. But then there's a third part, it's the resurrection. And the third part is the sacred returns, no longer as an object that you can grasp, an object that you're pursuing, but rather as a depth dimension you discover in objects. Mm. You know, God is no longer the thing that you love, God is discovered in the act of love itself. So the church is strangely this place that is critiquing the idea of the sacred object, that, that is awash, uh, that, is, that is rife 
in our society. Like I was just in Las Vegas last mm -hmm. week, and you know that is there. Everyone's <laughs> looking for the sacred object in Las right. Vegas, or making money from that pursuit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's awesome. That right there was Peter Rollins just being Peter Rollins, one of my favorite authors, and he was just bringing it. We had this conversation, as Chris said before, a few months back. We were crammed into a small flat in LA, and Pete was just renting it at the time. And on more than a few occasions as he was talking, Chris and I were absolutely speechless. Pete is such a ridiculously talented thinker and just a generous person, and we loved our time with him. Now we edited some of the speechless extended silences out, but a couple of things about that. Number one. It's pretty rare. Generally speaking, Chris and I always have something to say. But number two, Pete was opening up some new insights and ideas to us, creating some new categories and places for exploration, and our brains were working to catch up. So we just, we fell silent. Have you ever had a moment where words just kind of failed you and you were trying to connect the dots of new ideas or a, or a new concept? One of the things I love so much about this podcast and, and the, conversation we, the conversations we have is that we are learning all the time. And I firmly believe that we are created to be curious, to encounter new ideas, new concepts, insights, and understandings. Honestly, when it comes to matters of faith, creation, the universe, and God, and, and someone has it all neatly figured out and ready to break out of the box on a moment's notice, how boring is that? I understand that we are created, that God is still creating, and that we are called to be co-creators. Now, if this is true, we are only scratching the surface of what we will ever know. And I really hope there are countless times when I'm speechless in the face of new ideas. Now, I think that's a pretty solid life goal, don't you think? reveling in new ideas and ways of thinking as we live into the mystery as a community of people together. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. We're in the process of putting together several new episodes, and we can't wait to share them with you in the upcoming weeks. Looking ahead on May 1st at 7 p.m. Central Time, Shane Claiborne will be joining us for the Sandbox Cooperative Live event. Shane is a leading speaker and activist and will be talking about social justice, peacemaking, and Jesus. You seriously do not want to miss this. If you are anywhere near Rochester, Minnesota, uh, please join us, but also know that seating is limited and it is first come, first serve. If you're out of the area, you can also participate through our online stream and conversation. For more details, be sure to check out our website. We love hearing from our listeners, growing the Sandbox community, and developing this resource. Sign up for our email updates, connect with us through Facebook and Twitter, and be sure to rate us and review us on iTunes. Until next time, thanks for listening. I'm Dave. And I'm Chris. See ya. <laughs> Please watch your step as you exit the sandbox.